and then I'm going to pray, but I just wanted to give you a heads up so you know where we're going to be. Let's go ahead and let's pray uh, for today's service and for the other ministries in our church and around Cheyenne. Heavenly Father, so thankful for uh, the opportunity to be a part of your ministry in this world. In your kingdom, Father, as we go forward, we're uh, each one of us honored to be uh, able to stand alongside you and to uh, seek after you as our King and as our Lord and as our Master. Father, we're thankful that we don't go this alone. I know that uh, all over the world you've planted amazing churches full of amazing people who love you and who love others in your name. Father, I thank you for the First Congregational Church today and Pastor Kevin Frank. And uh, what a blessing it is for myself and for others to uh, gather together every Tuesday along with him uh, as we uh, just spend some time in prayer as pastors in Cheyenne, that we can have that unity of faith and that uh, ability to uh, pursue you and pursue your will for the churches in the city of Cheyenne. I would pray for First Congregational, Lord, that you would be encouraging them through the word today, that you would be using the ministry of Pastor Kevin as he preaches uh, to build up and edify the body of Christ there. Uh, Lord, that they would know how much it is you love them, that they would continue to grow in the knowledge and understanding of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, for our own missionaries that we send out, I would pray this morning for uh, Rachel Pock and her work in uh, in the Middle East there with Youth with a Mission as she's uh, working on becoming uh, better at communicating the language, as she's preparing to uh, have a few people come over and visit her for a month and uh, to, to join with her in ministry, Lord, as they begin to uh, disciple. I pray that they would uh, see a great, uh, continued great harvest of people who come to know you and love you as well, that they would pursue you uh, even in the midst of what for them must be horrific circumstances that uh, we can't even begin to comprehend what it must feel like to be in Lebanon right now, to be a Syrian refugee and to uh, have everything that you know destroyed and taken from you by uh, people who are bent on on destruction. And Lord, I pray that you would give them grace and mercy as a people. Father, we also pray this morning for the ministries in our church. We're thankful for our worship team. I'm thankful for Doug and his leadership of that, for each one that serves, uh, whether they're behind the scenes Uh, setting things up or running the slides or running the sound or these that are specifically on the stage, Lord, that are uh, here singing and playing and making joyful noises before us, Lord, and leading us to a place where we can center our hearts and minds on you. I'm thankful for them as well. Uh, Lord, as we go through a a vast passage this morning, uh, a section of scripture that covers a number of things, uh, Lord, I would ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to, uh, to work surgically in our hearts. Uh, that some of the things we run across will, uh, for some people, be a confrontation. It will be your word against them, and they'll be in a, a battle spiritually of heart and mind, Lord. I pray that they would uh, surrender, that they would hand themselves over to you. Uh, Father, and for others, we would look at this and uh, just be reminded of the simplicity of faith in you. Uh, Lord, that it would be an encouragement for us as well, that uh, we would not look so much at the circumstances in our life or others' lives, but instead we would remember that through you uh, that all things are possible and that you can work and minister in every circumstance, in every life. And we pray that you would do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you. But as I said earlier, we're in Mark chapter 10 today. And in Mark chapter 10, we're just continuing that march towards Jerusalem Uh, When we get into chapter 11 is when Jesus is actually going to have what we know as the triumphal entry. So two weeks from now will be the triumphal entry, and we'll be pointing our direction towards the end of the book, 
For us, Resurrection Sunday will also be Resurrection Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 16 will be landing right at that place. Uh, For that to happen, I had to uh, combine several of the stories that are happening here uh, in the teaching of Jesus. Uh, It's actually very helpful in the Gospel of Mark because in Mark, uh, Mark doesn't always give a lot of detail. He'll just say, this is what Jesus taught and not give a lot of detail, and then he'll move on to the next thing. So it allows us to kind of make a little bit more progress through the scripture as well. Sometimes, though, as you're going through these, uh, you find it difficult to find the connection. And so I've been trying to make it my goal to help you see how these stories all connect uh, as we see what Jesus is doing uh, on his journeys. So this morning, we're going to see basically three events that really are kind of encompassing one time period in the life of Jesus as he's journaling or journeying towards Jerusalem. Not, he wasn't journaling towards Jerusalem. I just I think about Jerusalem right now. I just want to write things. He was journeying towards Jerusalem. Uh, and as he's making that journey, the three things we're going to see today, uh, first of all, his teaching on divorce. Second of all, him blessing the children. And third of all, we're going to see the rich young ruler approach Jesus. Now, each one of those could be its own sermon, uh, but I find kind of an interesting thread through there. In particular, uh, both of those two teachings that we'll hit at the beginning on divorce, at the end on the rich young ruler, those teachings can be very hard for some people. It can show a picture of following Jesus Christ that is difficult for a lot of people. But what I love about that is kind of that hinge passage in the middle there where Jesus basically says, come at these things with the faith of a child. And I love how that kind of plays out. Uh, If we look at these things and we try to lawyer them, which is I think what a lot of us try to do with Scripture, we try to look for the the individual items and try to find the loopholes and try to understand every little teeny little concept and we get so focused in on every little detail that we kind of miss the bigger picture. Well, if we can look at this with the faith of a child, where a child would just receive this as this is from God. So yeah, it might be complicated, it might be difficult, but it's from God. That's the way I want to approach these scriptures. And so uh, we're not going to, hopefully, I say that because that's my plan, not going to take each one of these teachings all the way through to the point where I've kind of exegeted every single thing that could ever be talked about on those issues, but I'm going to try to take them instead, just as Mark has, has brought them there, just a quick overview of what was going on. So let's start with this first Uh, difficult passage or difficult for some. Uh, In verse 1, it says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. And then in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this. And he said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, when you're the pastor of a church in America, you recognize if you're going to preach on the issue of divorce, that there is a pretty good chance about 50% of the people that you're preaching uh, is directed at have already been divorced. And so it puts it in this kind of awkward situation, which I'm convinced that that's part of God's will for my life, is that he continually, through his word, puts me in awkward situations. So I'm always thankful for that. Um, so, so I want you to hear the heart of what Jesus is saying here and the heart of what is being recorded here. Uh, before you too quickly uh, get uh, sidetracked, by thinking about your situation and trying to think about all the reasons why your divorce might have been okay or why the divorce you're planning right now might be okay. Don't get sidetracked by any of that just yet. But instead, just try to receive the teaching that Jesus is bringing and then hopefully through that, uh, he'll be able to minister to your individual circumstance. The first thing I want to point out about this, though, uh, is that this was a test. In verse 2, it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. So let's understand what this is. This is not Jesus saying, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to give you the fullness of the teaching on marriage, divorce, remarriage. That's not what he's doing here. You can find those things all throughout Scripture. Uh, I've done that study. It's exhausting, but it's important to be able to do. Uh, that's not what he's trying to do here he is in a situation where there's a crowd of people around them. He's teaching the religious leaders, the people that everybody looked up at as being the most religious people are now challenging him. They're testing him. And they're not testing him for his approval. They're not trying to see whether or not he's good enough. They're trying specifically to stumble him. They've already decided they disagree with him. So they're trying to put him on the spot to put him in a bad circumstance to see if they can trip him up in some way. And so understand that that's what's the heart of their question. They don't actually have, I think, a real personal investment in this question beyond trying to trick Jesus or to test Jesus. So when Jesus answers, it's important to see how he responds to this. Uh, the first thing that they are really doing here, they're putting him by wording the question the way that they are, they're trying to put him in a situation where he only has two possible answers. They're trying to trip him up. And this is just a great way if you ever get into speech and debate or anything like that. If you can word a question in such a way that your opponent thinks there's only two possible outcomes, man, you're well on your way to winning that debate. And that's what they're doing here. There's really only two possible outcomes. Is it lawful or is it not lawful? That's the only two possible outcomes of this question. Well, if Jesus says it is lawful, then he has to get into this whole longer debate of under what circumstance is it lawful. If he says that it is lawful, uh, which one did I just say? Is lawful. So if he says now that it isn't, then there's going to be this whole other thing that happens with Moses where Moses does permit divorce. And so it's really just setting him up for future discomfort. They want to make this situation worse and worse. But what I love about this is the way Jesus handles it. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to not answer their question specifically. He's instead going to turn a question back towards them. And in this case, 
He's turning their question back towards them. He's basically making them answer the question. So they're going to say, is it lawful? And Jesus is going to say, well, what does the law say? And that's just a great diffusing of their attack here. He's not answering the question. He's making them answer their own question, which is important. They already know the answer. Now, they might historically, and certainly many commentaries will talk about this, historically be having what would be called an in-house debate on what reasons you can be divorced, because there was apparently historically kind of these two different views. One would say you could be divorced uh, only for very strict reasons, and then another group would say you could be divorced because she made runny eggs one morning, and nobody wants runny eggs, and so, hey. So that's kind of this, 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 this debate they're trying to draw him into to really distract from what he's really accomplishing here. He's not there specifically for the purpose of teaching about divorce. He wants them to join his kingdom. That's what his goal is. So we have kind of this, this lively debate going on, and they ask their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then in verse 3 it says, Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you. And I love how he just turns it right back on them. Now their response then is to quote the law. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. At this point, has Jesus answered their question at all? No, he made them answer their own question. What Jesus is going to do next without ever answering their question is change the direction of the conversation. Their focus is this loophole, this idea that we can get a divorce, Jesus is going to take them to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is not what you're permitted to do. The heart of the matter should be what God desires for you. They were focused on what was lawful. Jesus is going to turn the attention to what God desired. It's a change that he's bringing here. It's, it's changing the tone of the debate to not being about what can we get away with, but instead, what does God require of me? And those are really two different questions. What's lawful is sometimes awful. Do you see what I did there? That was, and now I want a waffle. I think I've earned one. So Jesus is now going to turn this on them here. He says to them, again, they've answered their own question. They're basically saying, yes, the law permits divorce. But Jesus is going to take it deeper than that when he says this in verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. He diagnoses the real circumstance there. God didn't desire divorce. The law certainly permitted it, but it was a permission not based on God's desire for what's best, but in response to the hardness of our hearts. The hardness of our hearts. And I can just tell you, uh, most of you probably already know this, but in any divorce situation, whether it's from both people involved or just one person involved, there's typically a hardness of heart that is at the root of it. There's just a hardness of heart that's behind all of it. There's so many other things that can play into that, but that's just the general idea. He's taking this now from a law issue to a heart issue. 
Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. And then he reminds them of God's ideal. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so his answer is to not actually answer their question. They were concerned with the law. He was concerned with the heart. They wanted to see what they could get away with. Jesus wanted to demonstrate what they should be aiming for. It's a directional difference between what they wanted and what Jesus was trying to get them at. And so then he brings the basic of the teaching. This is God's perfect will. That when he joins two people together, they're no longer two people. They're now one person. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now that's a tough teaching. The disciples thought it was a tough teaching. So when they're away from the crowd, it says they go into the house in verse 10. The disciples begin to question about this. In fact, in Matthew, uh, in the same scenario here in Matthew, they're going to say, well, if it's like that, should we even bother getting married? Like Like if it's really that big of a deal, should we even bother getting married? But herein they ask these questions of Jesus and he answers them. He actually doubles down on it. He doesn't ease up. He doubles down on it. He says, look, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And, equal opportunity offender here, if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. He doubles down on it. He doesn't loosen up. He doesn't lighten up. Because what he's aiming for is God's standard, not what can we get away with. Do you see what they're doing there? Do you see the difference in that? What Jesus is saying, this is God's standard. Now, I recognize that there are all kinds of variables that would play in to this. Uh, I told you a while that I've done the study before. This is what I call the ugly chart. Um, If you were to take all the verses about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Bible, you can come up with this flow chart that I am not going to take you through today because that's not the point. But what I'm saying is I recognize every circumstance, every situation is difficult. I recognize that. But that can become a distraction when you try to look at it in those terms of the exceptions to the rules, not the rule. It becomes a distraction from what God is trying to teach. So if anybody wants that, I can walk them through that. I can give you a copy of that. But that's not what Jesus is getting at here. This is not the fullness of the teaching of Jesus. There's more to what Jesus teaches about this in other Gospels and then what he has inspired in the other writings in Scripture. The summary would be this. God's desire, God's standard is that you not be divorced. But if you do get divorced, you should remain single with a couple of exceptions. Number one exception, if it's an unbeliever who leaves, then Paul says you're free. Number two exception is this exception of of fornication or adultery. In other words, those who were bound together as one, 
There is a legal exception, but it doesn't deflate the hardness of your heart. It doesn't change the hardness of heart issue. There's a legal exception under those cases. And then you can also remarry if your ex then dies. But what I like to tell people is you can't help them get remarried or die. You're not allowed to help with those things. The general standard is that you would remain single because even though your marriage legally might have been broken apart, what God has joined together is still one. And so although there might be a separation there, the typical biblical response to the majority of circumstances is to remain single. Now again, don't let that distract you from what Jesus is trying to get at. The issue with the Pharisees was not their views on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The issue with the Pharisees was the hardness of their heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to chip away at. So don't let those things distract you from the point he's trying to make here. Uh, The reality is uh, asking what you can get away with is already a tipping of your hand that your heart is already a mess. As soon as you start asking, how far can I take this? What can I get away with? You're already off track. Does that make sense? So now he then turns in this circumstance. It tells us that uh, they were bringing children to him. Let's get the ugly slide off there. Uh, they were, I say it's ugly because the pain that's involved in those types of circumstances, that's what I mean by that. It's just, it's just it's painful across the board. There's no joy in having these discussions about what leads to the ending of a marriage. It's not joyful. So we're going to turn to something that people like, and that's children. In verse 13, it said, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying hands on them. So now in the midst of all of this, here's the disciples. And just to put this into context, just last week, Just last week, when we were teaching through this in chapter 9, Jesus said these words, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So just last week, Jesus said to the disciples, Whoever receives one of these children in my name receives me. And now people are bringing children to Jesus, and they have obviously forgotten what he just said, and they're rebuking people for bringing their children to Jesus. And now you can see why it says, and Jesus was indignant. He was hopping mad at his disciples. He's angry because they're rebuking parents for bringing their children to Jesus. Don't bring your kids to Jesus. It sounds weird when you say it like that, right? But that's what they were doing. They were rebuking parents. Jesus doesn't have time for your children. Jesus can't spend all of his time blessing kids. Get those kids out of here. They're a distraction. They're a problem. Do you see how messed up that is? That his disciples would be doing that right after he taught them to allow the children to come to him? It's so backwards, they're thinking. 
But again, they were in the habit of ranking who belongs in the kingdom and who's the greatest in the kingdom. They continually get back to that place where they're trying to see who's the greatest, who's the best, and obviously the kids. The kids can't be that great because they're kids. And so they just reject them. But Jesus has the opposite teaching. I love this. Not only does he say the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, but he even goes further and says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And that's where we get the idea of a childlike faith. Have you ever... Let me just, let me rephrase that. I have tried to argue with my children about their faith. I remember when my daughter came to us, we're sitting down at dinner and she says, I've accepted Jesus and I've decided to be baptized. And I'm like, no, you didn't. And you know why? Because I'm a pastor. I will lead you through that. (laughs) And then I start examining her. Do you believe this? I do. Well, what does this word mean? And then she'd explain it. And at the end of dinner, I was like, what? She got saved without me? <laughs> she decided to get baptized without me explaining it to her? She figured it out on her own. Like as a child, she just thought to herself, I believe and I want to be baptized. That's powerful. But it's so easy for us to start to theologically define these things. Try to think through these things on a theological level and examine all the details because you wouldn't want a kid to get baptized believing in Jesus and maybe have some of their doctrine wrong. Why not? I got you guys all baptized when your doctrine was wrong. It's okay. The rest of your life is about refining the doctrine, refining your understanding of who God is, refining your understanding of how much he loves you. None of you understood how much Jesus loved you at the moment of your salvation. You're going to spend the rest of your life finding out much, how much he loves you. Permit the children to come to me and then receive the kingdom of God like a child. Not just permit the children to come to me, but when you come to Jesus, come to him like a child. It's just a simple faith. I worry sometimes that we actually deter kids from their faith because we try to convince them that they can't understand it yet. It's a dangerous game that we play. As we continue on, then we move to this next section, making good progress here, but I promise you it only gets longer. In verse 17, as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, Whoops. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, 
for he was one who owned much property. So now Jesus uh, is on his way out the door, and as he's going, this man comes running up to him and kneels before him. And think about who this is. This is a rich young ruler, right? This is, this is a rich guy. How many rich people do you see kneeling before teachers? It's a pretty awkward situation, right? And he says to Jesus, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now the evangelist in me, immediately, my response to that would be Romans 10.9. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Like, isn't that how Jesus is supposed to answer this question? He's supposed to share with them the ABCs of salvation, admit, believe, confess. Maybe take them through the spiritual laws, something like that. Maybe you could take them through Ray Comfort's program of convict them with the commandments and then bring them to repentance. Like, what system is Jesus going to use? This guy wants to know what he needs to inherit eternal life. And Jesus takes issue with his title. Good teacher, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that's God. Again, Jesus keeps coming back to this. People ask him a question, and he responds with a question. He's exploring what they mean by these things. And so he sets it up like this. There's only one who is good, and that's God alone. So it puts this person in a position where they have to decide, is Jesus really good? Because if he is, and there's only one who's good, then Jesus is God. It's this great question, which is once again being used by Jesus to examine the person asking it. You call me good teacher, but there's only one who's good, and it's God. He doesn't give the guy a chance really to answer it, or at least not in this passage. It doesn't seem clear. Maybe there was an awkward pause that's not there in Scripture. Maybe the guy is just like, huh, and never answers, and so Jesus kind of moves on. But then he gets to the commandments. Oh, you know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich guy says, I've done all of that stuff. Or no, I haven't done any of that stuff. That's two different things, right? You've got to be careful how you say that. Semantics will send you to hell if you're not careful. <laughs> Jesus says, you know the commandments. Isn't this the exact same technique he used with the Pharisees? What does the law permit? Jesus replied to the Pharisees, what does the law permit? You know what Moses said. What did Moses say? This guy says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. You already know what you're not supposed to do. And he makes a point. If you never sin, you'll never be in danger of hell. But what do we know? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus brought up these commandments, my guess is Jesus actually chose these ones specifically for this circumstance. I could be wrong, but it's not like he's just straight up quoting the Ten Commandments. 
It's, it's somewhat kind of piecemeal together there. In fact, he throws in one that's not even one of the ten. Do not defraud. So he's just kind of selecting some things. And so I almost wonder if Jesus doesn't know something about this guy, what with him being God and all. Might have by the Spirit been compelled to ask these specific questions. But this guy maintains his innocence. I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. Wow. Of course, he's a rich young ruler. Remember that. Keep that in mind. But So maybe not very long. So Jesus then moves on to the next circumstance then. He thinks this through a little bit. Remember uh, the different things that he has there. He's not committed adultery or, or, or uh, murder or stealing or false witness or defrauding or honoring your father and mother. So Jesus looks at him and it says, Jesus felt love for him. And I love that. Like in that moment, even though this guy isn't quite grasping what Jesus is bringing across just yet, Jesus still felt love for him. In that moment, Jesus loved this guy. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So how many of you, when you share the gospel with your friends and family, when they ask you, what must I do to be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? How many of you say to them, well, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor and come follow me? Does anybody say that? We've got a bunch of tracks on the wall out there. None of them mention this verse at all. Isn't that odd? I mean, that was his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think the first thing Jesus tries to point out with the law is, first of all, you need to understand that you cannot earn eternal life. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. The guy wasn't okay with that. He says, I've already done all the stuff that has earned me eternal life. I'm already good enough to go to heaven. And so Jesus says, okay, let's see how good you are. Would you sell everything to follow after me? Now the guy has an equation in his mind. Which do I want more? Eternal life or a good life now? Jesus just laid bare this man's heart. This guy now has to make a decision. Which is more important? Eternal life or a good life now? And what did he choose? It says, At these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He would rather have a good life now than eternal life. Isn't that the same question that comes up with the divorce situation? Would you rather have your comfort and joy now or eternal life? Well, what are the exceptions to the rule? Would you rather have riches now or treasure in heaven for eternal life? It's a great diagnostic tool, isn't it? 
It's just a great diagnostic tool. Of course, the sadness of this guy is noticed by Jesus. He leaves grieving. So in verse 23, Jesus looks around and says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. And that's when he says, Jilton, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? He then says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to them, to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So he then turns to his disciples after the rich man leaves grieving. He turns to his disciples and he said, it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. And the, and the disciples, when they hear that, they're amazed at these words. This is not what they anticipated Jesus to say to this guy. And then he calls them children, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he even makes it worse. It's easier for a camel, picture if you would a camel now, it's a fairly large animal, right? Look out, it'll spit on you. Imagine a camel, imagine the eye of a needle. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the disciples ask the obvious question, well, if it's that hard, who can be saved? Jesus' answer, nobody can be saved on their own power. It's impossible to be saved on your own power. It's only possible to be saved by the power of God. And you see how he keeps chopping away at this root, this root that the disciples are struggling with, right? Because they're trying to rank themselves. I'm the best. No, I'm the best. Keep those kids away. They're trying to rank themselves. They're trying to show that they're somehow better than everybody else. Jesus is consistently trying to tell them, if you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. If you want to get into heaven, don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. If heaven is your goal, if eternal life is your goal, then don't surrender it for a happy, fulfilled life now. And so, Peter began to say to him in verse 28, Behold, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. Do you see the connection there to the rich young ruler? And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, mothers, sisters, children, farms, along with persecutions <laughs> and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, Peter, being Peter, is trying to justify, hey, I've earned the kingdom, haven't I, Jesus? In fact, we all have, all of us 12 have. 
you told the rich young ruler, go sell everything and follow after me. We did that. Haven't we earned the kingdom? Jesus says, in a general sense, anybody who leaves behind everything in order to follow him, in order to be doing it for the sake of the gospel, and that's kind of a key point there, doing it specifically for Jesus for the sake of the gospel, you're right. You will be rewarded ultimately with even eternal life. That's true. But be careful because many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And I think he's still hitting at the root of the heart of his disciples. Remember, they wanted to know who was the greatest in chapter 9. Uh, in chapter 10, they were trying to turn away the children because they weren't good enough to hang out with Jesus like the 12 were. And then here they're trying to justify themselves. And just as a fast forward to next week, next week James and John are going to say this in verse 37, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory, Jesus. They're still in their mind in this positional place that they feel like they somehow are better than and have somehow earned something that cannot be earned but can only be given to them by God. And that is eternal life. And it hinges on this simple act of faith coming to Jesus with the faith of a child. Now for us, when we see these things, the difficult things that follow, whether it be difficulty in marriage, or some would even see that as a lack of freedom to divorce, or when we see the difficulty of potentially losing some of your finances or of your happiness or of your friendships now, some of us see those things and we're unwilling to surrender them for the gift of eternal life. We're unwilling to, by faith, come after Jesus Christ because those things are more important to us than He is. See how Jesus is drawing this out in each of these things. This idea of discipleship that we have in our mindsets, we have to recognize that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is costly to us. That we surrender not just some of our rights and our freedoms, we surrender all of them because we're calling Him Lord. And if He's Lord, He's the boss now, and we're not. We're surrendering everything to Him to make Him Lord. Do you see how difficult that is? I think we, we kind of live in such a nice culture right now that it's hard for us to see this clearly. We come to church, we've got heaters and air conditioning and soft, comfy seats. We've got like every potential instrument to lead us in worship. The wind cannot get through this building. It's so comfortable. It's just so 
easy for us. We forget that we didn't come to Christ for an easy life now. We came to Christ because He was offering us eternal life later. And the misconception of so many people in their faith is that if I come to Jesus, my life now will be better. And that's not one of the promises of Scripture. In fact, even as Jesus is trying to list off some of the good benefits of following Him in this world, He also added at the end of verse 33, along with persecution, (laughs) yeah, you know, you're going to lose some friends, but you're going to gain a whole church family. Yeah, you might lose your home, but you're going to gain a million homes because all these other believers are going to want to care for you. That's great. But you're still going to be persecuted. You're still going to have struggles. It's still going to be difficult. The math of the kingdom is surrender everything, gain everything. That's the math. Surrender everything, gain everything. Everything is handed over to Jesus Christ in your life, and He hands over to you an eternity in heaven. If you think there's some level that you can work yourself up to, to try to earn these things, you're somehow mistaken in that. I love verse 27. With people it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Amen? Heavenly Father, it's a a lot of stuff in a little bit of time. And even less time next service with a baptism. Uh, But Lord, I would pray that in your word, each one of us,